Welcome to the Cultivating Business Growth Podcast, bringing you weekly discussions designed to help you grow your business and create the lifestyle you desire. Elevate your business with proven strategies from CPAs and business advisors. We discuss real-world challenges solved with actionable steps that get you real results, both in business and building the life you desire. Welcome to episode number 74 of the Cultivating Business Growth Podcast, brought to you by PJS and Co. CPAs. I'm your host, Megan Spicer, and today we are talking about and answering the question, what is my business worth? We want to help business owners understand more about the process of business valuations, understand that there are many variables involved, and what you can do to be proactive about your business's value. So today we are welcoming an expert in the field, but before we get to him, I want to welcome back Katina Peters. Uh, You all know her as a partner here at PJS and Co. CPAs. Hi, Katina. Hi, Megan. Glad to be here again on just a really interesting topic. I think it's just super valuable for people to, in the business world, to get a little bit of an understanding of the overall value of their business, because that's what they're building. Most of them, that's a large, one of their largest assets that they have in life if they own their own businesses. So they want to make sure they're building it in a way that they're getting the value out later down the line and uh, being able to kind of you know count on that towards building their retirement or what have you. So I think it's a really important topic. Yeah, yeah. And we are happy to bring on our expert in this field for today's episode. We have the founder of Gateway Valuation Consulting, LLC, a valuation and exit planning firm. He is here to lend almost 20 years of valuation, corporate finance, and M&A experience. I'm going to be asking you what that means. (laughs) He is one of only three CPAs in Missouri to also hold the globally coveted CFA charter and the ABV accredited in business valuation designation. Welcome to the show, Zach Sharkey. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to to dig in a little bit and first off, get to know a little bit more about you and your experience. I I read M&A and as a marketing professional, I'm not sure what that stands for. So I want you to explain that a little bit first and then tell me about your background and what how you've come to be an expert in business valuations. Sure. So I have worked in, in many different roles in valuation, uh, starting from actual mutual funds that you would purchase. I was on the investment research team for uh, a company called Calmos Investments up in Chicago, and then kind of worked into the, uh, the private world, private equity world. I was around 2008 and have been in that since. So uh, in terms of Valuing privately held companies for many reasons uh, could be transactions, gift and estate tax, general corporate planning, ESOPs, to actually uh, the firm I work for buying companies, uh, buying and selling companies, kind of a little bit of everything. Right now, uh, I'll give you an example today. I'm, I'm working on three valuations. One is for gift tax valuation. Another one is for an owner wishing to sell his company to a key employee. And the third is for say estate tax. So someone, this client's family member passed away and they need to set the basis for, it's not a taxable estate. They need to set the basis for the company. I'm also helping on a business owner who is in the manufacturing industry. 
who uses a lot of lumber. And if anyone is familiar with lumber pricing right now, it, if you see the price trajectory, it's just gone straight up and it's a huge problem. So we're helping him with it's his crazy. hedges on that. Yeah, he has he has very little hedging. Uh, he had essentially no long-term hedging program in place. So we're working to get that uh, instituted with them. So it's you know mostly valuation and you know on the M and A mergers and acquisitions M and A is, is okay. what that means that's, on that side. I, after I said it, I was like, okay, but that's what it is. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all these acronyms you CPAs use and <laughs> business evaluation professionals. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's kind of the 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 crux of what um, what we do here. Yeah. Thank you for giving us a background and, you know, letting people know why they should listen up when, when you're talking, because you definitely know what you're talking about. And we want to share that wealth of knowledge. And thank you so much for sharing your time to come on the the podcast and share that with our listeners. So we want to start off with addressing when would someone need a business valuation? I think that's kind of the first starting point of when and why would I need that? Sure. So I'm going to speak uh, to most you know, closely held businesses. We're not talking about large, you know, near publicly traded, you know, traded size firms. Kind of not your mom and pop will say anything up to half a billion in revenue, really. But most of them fall, you know, under a hundred million. So some of the reasons why you need one: buy sell agreements are a, a big reason. Uh, if there's a triggering event that occurs, uh, you typically need a valuation for that. Uh, buying a company, if you're going to add on uh, to your existing platform, that we do a lot of uh, valuations for that. Uh, some firms, and this isn't super common, but for some of the larger ones, especially because uh, retaining key employees is a very big concern right now, or stock options or other kind of like phantom value performance-based compensation agreements. Uh, so we do valuations for that. Selling or planning to sell your company, that's pretty obvious. You want to know what your company's worth. Selling or buying interest to a shareholder, that's that's another very common reason is uh, say you want to bring on, this is really when it comes to succession planning, if someone wants to a younger employee, but you know, he or she has been identified as a key employee, a successor to the firm, you know, what's that interest worth? What, what price would you set it at? And a lot of it has to do with legal issues too, because if you set it too high or too low, you can get into some fiduciary problems. So it, it's important to have it uh, right, or at least supportable. Some other ones would be just general planning purposes. That, that's There are so many for that. Divorce is, uh, we don't really do divorce valuations here, but there are people who definitely specialize in that because it usually goes to, to litigation, but that's another one. Uh, gift purposes for gift taxes. So if someone is wishing to lower their taxable estate, they can gift over time. There are things called valuation discounts, and I'll, I'll touch on that briefly, really quick. A valuation discount is a uh, if we're going to compare a publicly traded company share that can go on my E-Trade account and buy and sell. It is for one, it's marketable because I can sell it and get cash in two days, and it's in terms of the level, it's a uh, minority interest because you really don't have much control. Well, if you're a owner of a privately held firm, those shares aren't very marketable. There is no First of all, you don't know what the price is. Second, they're not marketable. They're not something you can just go and sell. Usually the operating agreement or whatever their governing document is restricts what you can do or how you can uh, transfer those interests. And what we apply are valuation discounts. So what people can do is they can gift their interests using the 
I think it's 14,000 uh, over years exemption amount to as many people as you want. You can kind of stuff as many, as much shares as possible and lower your taxable estate. So that's, I mean, that's just something that we focus on a lot. I think it's going to become more popular. And I just, before hopping on here, I saw that they're going to release the new, the new president's going to increase the capital gains tax rate uh, significantly, uh, which is also, I know another thing coming up is the estate tax. The previous president increased the, uh, the exemption. Yep. That's probably going to get pushed back down. So a lot more business owners are going to fall to the uh, estate tax. Uh, so those are some of the reasons uh, they can they can really go uh, much more. But for most, like I said, of, of your small to middle sized company business owners, these are the types of things they'll they'll be facing for when it comes to a business valuation. Yeah, and I just want to uh, chime in a little bit here for one of the first things you said at the beginning of of that, why would you need one, was the buy-sell agreement. And I think probably a lot of our listeners are familiar with that, but just in case, um, basically that's an agreement that you enter into with the partners or shareholders of your small business. And a lot of times the spouses are involved in that discussion because what it is, is it's basically... It, something that comes into effect if, you know, one of the partners should pass away or become disabled or something like that. And it establishes upfront exactly what the value of the business is that's going to get paid out to the estate, how that's going to work. Maybe there's going to be life insurance involved, but it's really, really important that you have something like that if you have multiple people involved in a business, because um, just like any other estate situation and you get high emotions and people don't understand. You have a spouse coming in that maybe doesn't understand how the business operates and they think they should get a ton of money for it or what have you. And I've seen lots of issues come up when you don't have something like that in place up front and having that value attached to that buy-sell agreement and updated just makes it very clear to everybody you know, what would happen in the case of a death or disablement or something like that, so that you don't have these big fights and there's not these different expectations going on. So I just thought it would take a moment just to talk about that specific situation. And uh, as you point out, Zach, I think that, you know, given the current tax climate with regards to, you know, how the House and Senate and President are controlling things right now, that it's fairly likely that we're going to see a reduction in that overall estate limit and more estate tax, you know, circumstances coming up. And so, and that's a long-term game, right? Your estate plan, typically that's a long game. It's not, you know, you're going to do it in two years necessarily. I mean, obviously if you don't have something in place, you want to do as much as you can, but you really need to look at kind of that long-term plan with regards to that. And I think again, like we mentioned, or I mentioned at the beginning, just having that baseline value and knowing what drives those things in your business for any business owner is very good information to have because, you know, business owners put their heart and soul into their business. You don't want to get to the end of, you know, your 30 years in business or what have you, whatever that number is, without building some sort of value into that business. And it sounds strange, but if you don't have the right systems and procedures and infrastructure and those kinds of things in place, what's very valuable to you may not be as marketable as you were speaking about, Zach, to someone else because they can't just step in and become you. You need to kind of think ahead and build a business that is going to be valuable, have that exit strategy in mind as you go forward. So just a couple of little extra things to say about that. And also just to, to kind of add on to that, when it comes to buy-sell agreements, a lot of things people don't think about are divorce, especially. And the more partners you have in terms of owners, 
I mean, look at the divorce rate. That's usually a triggering event. It's going to cause this. If you're an S corporation, you know, you have the hundred person limit. You can really get into some problems with that. Key man is also another big problem. And we're seeing more of that, especially with the, the succession planning going on. That's an insurable event you can have to kind of incentivize, you know, your key people. Just, just to add on to that, but yeah, it's it, buy sell agreements are something that I, I work with extensively. Unfortunately, most are poorly worded and not really updated or planned. People, it's kind of an afterthought, but it, it really should not be. So it sounds like, I mean, the major thing is peace of mind if you're getting it for planning and purposes like that. I mean, that's a huge factor. In, and knowing, like you said, Katina, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, the factors that, that are going to impact the value of your business too. So before we get to that, though, I want to talk about the types of valuation reports because I know there's several different types, and I'm not sure that many people are aware of that. Yes, there are. So it really depends on the valuation organization, and I kind of want to just give a real brief overview of that. There are two nonprofit valuation organizations in in the U.S., uh, the uh, ASA, American Society of Appraisers, and the AICPA, which if you're an accountant, you know who they are. I belong to the ASCPA with the ABV, Accredited Business Valuation Designation. There are a number of for, or, uh, for-profit organizations. I don't really know all what they do. Uh, they kind of come and go quite a bit. So I'm going to speak to at least what I use, AICPA. The th- we, have, we have three types, and it's really, if you want to compare it, it's, it's pretty similar in terms of the, uh, the amount of work and when it comes to cost, too of what a CPA would provide when it comes to financial statements. So the highest would be a, uh, a full narrative report. And those are typically used for anything that's going to, if it's being stapled to a tax return, it's going to the IRS or the Department of Labor. You can't really use anything less than that. Those are the most expensive. They read almost like a thesis. They're very uh, in-depth uh, and very lengthy. You have to explain and support every material input or assumption that you have because the IRS or the Department of Labor will pick it out. So you have to, uh, they are are expensive, but usually it really depends on, on what the situation is. But the thing is, there are, and I'm going to talk about the other two, almost every firm, and I've worked for some years ago, if you call and ask for a valuation report, they'll, they'll say, this is you know, what, what we offer. And so it's really important for business owners to know these other two. So the next one, because you can get a much better cost benefit with these. The second one would be called a summary report. Now, these are pretty good alternatives for the uh, full narrative report. They're less expensive. And instead of, for example, being 100 pages, they're like 50 pages. You're getting, you don't have all the assumptions and everything detailed out, but you still get the same result, essentially. That's always, a, a, I think, you know, when it comes to any kind of planning, they're, uh, it's just a much better cost benefit because you don't need 100 pages of stuff that you don't care about. I mean, if I'm going to put it bluntly, that, that just they don't need it. And the third one is a, uh, a, it's called a calculation of value report. A calculation of value report is, and if, you know, if we're, if we're comparing these to the financial statements or financial statement uh, that you, uh, CP would provide, a full narrative report would be like an audit. A summary report would be like reviewed, compiled, or a calculation of value report would be like compiled. They're the least expensive. However, they give the appraiser more leeway to use man- management's assumptions because they're agreed upon 
procedures type of project. So it, it's actually one of our biggest sellers. Uh, most of our clients love it. We, we have kind of taken the full narrative uh, modeling and put it into the calculation of value report. So we're still able to get you know, that close number, whereas a lot of the industry, what they'll do is they'll just use a simple capitalization of earnings and, and we'll get to that type of approach, which is very simple. We, on the other hand, take, because we know our clients are needing, they want a pretty reliable number, but they don't want to pay a whole lot of money. So, you know, instead of giving them something that, you know, maybe it's okay, maybe it's not, we, we kind of follow to a T what the AICPA provides, but, you know, we, we strip out what, what's not really what they need and then include as much as what they, what's useful to them. And usually it's just the value, you know, the valuation. Uh, they can ask me or ask us if, uh, you know, they have questions in terms of other assumptions, but it's still pretty laid out in the reports. So those are usually what I suggest to, to anybody, whether they go with us or someone else, if they're doing some kind of general planning is to use those because they're all, I mean, they're a fraction of the price of a full narrative report and they're going to get you pretty close to what you want or what you probably would have got with a full narrative report. It's just a better cost benefit. Yeah. So you're basically, if you're in a position that you really need to highly defend the number and all the assumptions underlying it, it has to have that full narrative. And, you know, so you're, if you're in a position where you're looking at a very litigious situation or something the IRS may audit and then disallow, et cetera. So, you know, you're really in that full narrative scope um, because you just really need to be able to go back and argue and pass an audit or pass, you know, whatever scrutiny may happen to it. And then on, in the summary report, kind of like you said, a step down. So you're in a different scenario there where, you know, you're kind of mid middle road, right? You're not quite as full scoped in the big report. Um, but that summary report kind of puts you in the middle of the road where, like you said, in certain divorce situations, or, you know, maybe if you're potentially selling your business and somebody wants a little more work done than just your calculation of value, they, you know, to feel comfortable, maybe the buyer wants a little more information and it would feel more comfortable, you know, you can look at that. And then that, like you said, for just general planning purposes, like we were talking about the long run of your estate plan or the long run of how you're building your business and building up your value, you might want to do a calculation of value every couple few years, something like that to make sure that you're progressing in the direction that you want. Or if you're going to be selling it, you know, maybe you're not selling it right now, but you're looking to sell in five to 10 years or something like that. And you want to get a baseline number and start working towards the number you're looking for. That's what I've seen. And so I agree that it's good to know that there's more options out there. Yeah. This is why business owners need people like you guys, because I would have no idea that you could sell me the most expensive one. I'd just be like, okay, I guess that's what I need. <laughs> you know, you listen to who you're talking to. So it's, it's good to understand the differences between them. And at least you know what questions to ask, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you, like I said, that's typically what happens is that they will sell the, the full narrative report. If you call uh, a valuation firm and ask, you know, how much is a valuation cost? They're not going to say anything. Almost every time they're going to say what the full narrative report costs. Right. So in prepping for this episode, I read that there's different methods for valuation. So I put together a couple of questions about that because I wanted to understand if the method depended on the advisor or if it's determined by industry, like what impacts the method that is used for valuation? It's a great question. It, this is the biggest it depends question, I think, 
uh, that we have we've run into so far. <laughs> uh, so there are three types of ap approaches that are used. There's approaches, and under each approaches are different methods. So the first approach is an income approach, and in that you're taking a numerator, which is your you know, some kind of derivative of income. I use free cash flow. Divide it by a denominator, which is the cost of capital. That's the one that, that we use, a discounted cash flow model or discounted cash flow method falls under that. And that's pretty much what we use. Most industries, you know, if we're not, if we're valuing a company, that's really the basic building blocks of valuing a company. What's it earning and how, what's the risk of earning, you know, what you expect to earn. It's pretty simple in theory and practice. It's a little more complex. Well, I'll, I'll say in terms of the income approach, the, the types of methods, there are two, like I said, the discounted cash flow method where you're projecting out essentially your P&L for a, a set number of years. We'll say five years. That, that's a pretty basic one. And then it's called discounting it back. So the first part is you project out your P&L. Then you calculate your free cash flow. Free cash flow is not EBITDA. And I, I, I hate when people do this. Free cash flow is the cash after accounting for your depreciation. It's a non-cash charge, but you actually, you deduct your cash charges, which are required networking capital, which everyone has, and capital expenditures. So that's free cash flow, I guess, in a nutshell. Um, there's another approach that I see used a lot, which is a capitalization of earnings method. We do not use that period. I, I don't like to see it being used, especially today, and I'll highlight this. What it does is you're taking a single numerator and a single denominator. So we'll say we're, they're using free cash flow. You're assuming that you're going to grow it at a constant rate every year forever. You assume that that free cash flow is a, is a solid number in terms of what can be expected you know, with growth over time. This really has been kind of thrown out this past year. COVID hit. How do you handle for PPP money? How do you handle for these types of uh, changes? Some companies were hit more. Some have done really well because of it. The capitalization of earnings method just ignores all of that. Uh, so that's especially with the uh, you know the denominator using the same denominator throughout the entire projection. There's just there's, there are too many flaws with it. We don't use it. Period. Uh, I see a lot of uh, the ones I see it will be like you know people not really experienced in this industry some of the for profit organizations kind of push it because it is pretty simple to understand but it's not really the best to use uh, so we don't use it the second approach is the asset approach now this one is pretty simple you're writing up the the value of the assets and subtracting out their current their current values and then subtracting out the liabilities the market values this is used mostly for uh, actually doing one right now for a real estate holding company. So they had appraisers for this one, they had like 30, 30 uh, properties. They had real estate appraisers value all of those properties. So I'm taking all the assets, the current market value of those, and then subtracting out any debt that they have on their books. That's called the asset approach or net asset value method. That one's, I would say, probably the simplest to, to understand. And, and the third is the market approach. And there are two commonly used methods that fall under this. The first is the guideline public company method, where you're looking at publicly traded companies taking their pricing multiples. So price to sales, you know, you know, price to EBITDA, price to gross profit, and applying that to the, the privately held company. I don't like doing that. I'm on, there, there's, there, there's a camp, there are two camps on this. I think my camp's winning this one, especially now, and especially 
as the S&P has done quite well and a lot of privately held firms have not done so good, it's because of, I mean, it could be a number of things, access to capital. A privately held firm just can't go out and issue debt or, or stock. They can't do an offering. It's really, and also the incentive. So if you're a manager of a privately held firm, you know, most pass-through companies, they're trying to, in all honesty, they, they want to lower their taxable income. They want to pay as, as little tax as possible. A publicly traded company isn't, I mean, they're a minority owner, maybe if they have stock or stock options, but they, their drivers are, we need to pump up EPS or earnings per share. I need that stock price to go up as much as I can because I need to get a bonus. But a, a $20 million company versus a $50 billion publicly traded company, there is so much difference that, you know, it, you have to really be careful what you use. So for that, you know, we don't really use it. The other one is the guideline company transactions method. In this method, what we're doing is there are a couple databases uh, that provide transactions of privately held firms. So, you know, they're bought and sold. You can see, you can sort by industry, by, you know, pricing, all sorts of ways to sort. Uh, and this has been a really good one until again, COVID, because you can't use pre-COVID transaction data to apply it to valuation dates that fall after March of last year of 2020. Because so, so much change, even if it was good or bad, it doesn't matter if something changed. So the data that we got from the pre-COVID, we can't use for post-COVID. Well, it's been a year later. It takes about eight months for these transactions to get uploaded, even if they're reported. And because of COVID, there was a huge decline in M&A transactions. So there are fewer transactions to report and there are fewer post-COVID transactions, period. And it takes a while to get them up of what there is. So what we have been doing instead of using them is to use the implied multiples. And I, I don't want to get too off the, too esoteric on this. <laughs> so we using the income approach, usually a DCF method, we determine what the company's value is. And then we want to say, okay, well, does that make sense? Well, what we'll do is we'll use the, the market approach from the guideline company transactions pull up as many relevant transactions as possible, see what their multiples are, and then use our actual price that we calculated based on you know what sales are, EBITDA, all those things are, to show, look, it falls within this range. Uh, but in terms of using it directly to value a company until there's enough information, uh, post-COVID transaction information, um, we're not going to use it because if it goes to court, I mean, I wouldn't be in favor of myself. So... I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to, uh, you know, to be using it when I can't justify it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, kind of to, to give a comparable that people are maybe more familiar with um, is kind of looking at like comparable sales of, of, of a house. Like if you're looking at selling your house, like what's similar houses selling for in a similar area. And, and so that's kind of like basically what you're getting at. It's, it's a similar situation. Like here's a similar business, similar size, similar industry, you know, and as of course, as more of those transactions are happening, like you're saying, there hasn't been a lot of those transactions lately, but uh, you have kind of more data to pull from. But it's not enough to grab that and say, oh, yeah, that's what my house is worth, right? Because there's always a difference, right? <laughs> Your house isn't exactly like the house down the road. It's not in exactly the same location, it may not have exactly the same amenities. So it's kind of a similar situation with a business, right? So you're in a similar industry, a similar size business, but your business is going to be very different and unique from the other business. So like you're saying, that's not necessarily the best 
overall approach to valuing a business. You want to get in there and, and look more at the structure, look at the risks. If somebody was coming in and buying this business, what kind of risk are they taking on, right? And what kind of earnings or rewards can they expect, you know, from that and, and kind of using more of that look at things. It sounds like uh, if I'm following everything with regards to the type of methodology that you guys are looking at, you know, what's that free cash flow that's going to come back to the quote unquote investor, the new owner of the business, should they choose to buy it? Or, you know, obviously that's in a sales situation, but um, that's one way of looking at it at least. That's actually the example uh, I give most commonly is, is the, is, is that very example. And, and to kind of, you know, add to what you said, because you said it perfectly is that, you know, not every house is the same. Maybe they have a solar roof. There, there's these difference that we call firm specific type risk. You could say house specific type amenities, or, you know, maybe if one's gutted out, you know, you never know. Uh, they could be in the same neighborhood, but they're still different. So I want to talk about, I teased that we were going to talk about the factors that impact value in your business. And I want to address that so that as a business owner, I can start looking at some of those things that could potentially improve. Yes. So I'm going to speak again to, because if we want to talk about what a company or any assets worth, it's worth what it earns on a risk adjusted basis. So the, the risk of earning or not earning that income. So first would be, you know, in the valuation world, we'll say free cash flow. I mean, that's just your performance, how well you're performing, improving your bottom line, obviously. It's really pretty basic in terms of the, the income side. So I don't want to really talk too much about that because I think that's almost any advisor can, can add value there. A CPA definitely knows this stuff. But the part that I run into is really the things, uh, the cost of capital or the risk of the risk of the business is usually what most don't focus on. We call that unsystematic risk or firm specific risk. I've worked with many, many firms that lack management bench depth and have been burned badly by that. Uh, so if you're looking to, to sell your business at any time in the next 10 years, it is best to have the next line of successors in place as soon as possible. It's a huge problem because, I mean, I have actually several examples, but the, the genesis is you have a one or two man shop, a $150 million uh, revenue firm, that person dies and I mean, it, it just takes one time and I've seen it and all that knowledge is gone. They never pass it on. Uh, so that's a huge risk because without that person, yes, they might have a ton of sales, but if they have, if one person has all the relationships or it's an engineering firm, that person has all the innovation, uh, they come up with everything, that company's progress is going to stagnate significantly or, you know, the company could die. So that's, that's a real, real big one, uh, especially with what I see with the, the boomer generation looking to pass on or sell their companies. Customer concentration is a huge problem for almost every small, closely held business. If 70 to 80% of your revenue is coming from two or three customers, that has to be diversified. It's something owners need to focus. It will improve your value. These all improve your value. So building these lowers the risk. And I can tell you from the buy side, working with private, I work with a lot of private equity buyers. They, this is what they're focusing on. And not just, you know, people think private equity. I mean, they buy $2 million companies as, as add-on acquisitions. So we're not talking about, you know, the huge $100 million firms. We're talking about any, almost all businesses. You know, if you want to improve your value, these are the things that they are looking at. Industry concerns is really a big one too. And especially where we are in the, uh, 
political or economic cycle. Right now with economic ones, uh, one of the companies we recently worked with is an auto mechanic shop. Well, what's going to happen to, we'll say, gas stations? What's going to happen to my client who works on combustion engine vehicles? If we're all electronic vehicles in 10 years and there are no gas stations or charging stations, what's going to happen to that? Uh, you can look at you know the, the rideshare companies. They decimated the taxi cab industry in just like a year. The iPhone took over Kodak. I mean, if you you know ignoring the the other stuff that Kodak's in now, uh, back when they were in just the camera industry, I mean they were gone within a year. They declared bankruptcy. Hmm. So you have to be ready for that. You know you see a lot of change coming up on the horizon, and a lot of owners are just kind of sticking their head in the sand thinking it's all going to blow by, but it's not. It, it really is a painful thing to to think about and know nothing. Like if we're going back to, you know, the auto mechanic or a gas station owner, there's really not, in my view, we don't have a clear direction, but you need to have it in mind. You need to be, you have to at least acknowledge it and think, okay, what can I do to keep going as things unfold and be very proactive with that? Those are very big things that really can help a company. Bench step, uh, I can't stress that one enough because so many companies ignore that. Customer concentration, and it could even be like supplier concentration too. I don't want to say customers. And then just general, you know, where we are in the economic cycle or political, what's going to happen in, in 10 years or what we believe is going to happen in 10 years is just don't ignore it. Yeah, and I think that too, I mean, you know, just listening to some of the things you're saying from a proactive standpoint, what some, you know, business owners could do, it makes me think about the SWOT analysis, you know, that we talk about from a strategic planning perspective, and we recommend uh, doing that SWOT analysis. And I think, you know, some of the things that you're speaking to really come up in that, you know, what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses and opportunities and threats? And if companies are really looking at, you know, those kinds of things, like a weakness, you know, for example, like, do we have a concentration of, of all our revenues coming from just the very few customers that, that that's a, a weakness that we want to expand upon or, or supplier, like you said, either direction. And, you know, what are our opportunities and threats? So, if you are that auto mechanic, that threat, you know, maybe coming that, you know, things are changing to the fully electric. And so what can we do to maybe shift into that marketplace and have a longer term strategic plan of how do we, you know, diversify our operations, maybe in our knowledge base so that we can maneuver with the changing times, if that's the circumstance that we're in. You said not sticking your head in the sand, but doing that SWOT analysis and doing those strategic thinking um, and really being honest about, you know, what's coming up because it can affect so much. I mean, it can affect you staying in business, but uh, like you're speaking of, it can just affect the value of your business too and everything maybe that you've worked a lifetime to build in that business. So we want to take the opportunity to protect that asset and to grow that asset. And, you know, it takes all of these things happening to do that. You know, as you indicated, setting up systems and structures is a huge way to get efficiencies, but it's also a huge way to get value to reduce risk. Like you're saying, it sets up a structure where that knowledge is passed down and those operations stay in place regardless of the people maybe at the top, whether that's two people or, you know, a group of people. It doesn't, you know, the whole business doesn't disappear because one person can no longer function in that capacity. So I 
definitely can see where, you know, if you're again, a buyer coming into buy a business, um, or you're in a buy sell situation or scenario, if you have really good managers in place, you have really good systems and procedures in place, all those kinds of things, that's going to be a much more attractive business for somebody to step into than if they're just trying to, you know, replace you as the owner of the business and, you know, like become you and take on the relationships that you have, because as we all know, everybody's different. And sometimes those relationships work well, and sometimes they don't, people don't like change, (laughs) things like that. So it really needs to kind of have more depth, like you're saying, to get that value in the business. Okay. So the last thing that we want to talk about, or one of the last things is levels of value. And I know this is the first time I've heard this term. So can you talk to us about what that means? Sure. So think of it from uh, control versus minority. When I mean minority, it means lack of control. If you're buying a company, you're going to pay probably a price that's higher than what you would get if you didn't own the company. And here's a good example. So if you buy a share of Apple stock right now, they have, I don't know how many, a billion or so shares issued. You own a minority level interest. You can't make any operational decisions of that company. If you wanted to buy Apple, have a takeover of the company, you're gonna have to pay a premium for the shareholders to agree to, you know, to, to do that. It's called a control premium. On the other hand, it's a uh, lack of control or minority discount. The reason why this is important is because many business owners look at everything pro rata. Whereas, okay, the company's worth 10 million. That means if, first of all, is that a controller? Is that a minority interest? If it, in terms of value of the company, if it's on a control interest, which most assume, if someone is buying a 10% interest, they don't have control. So there should be what they call a valuation discount, a lack of control discount to compensate that from an economic standpoint, because they don't have control. It is worth less. It's like the publicly traded share. Whereas if you had control, it'd be worth a little bit more. It's, the, I guess the main point is it's not a pro rata type of situation. You can't look at, say, okay, the, the firm's worth 10 million. That means your 10% is worth 10% of that, worth a million bucks. It just, that's not how, that's not how economically speaking is how it's done. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, just knowing, knowing that, you know, because otherwise someone might walk into it and not know that that's a factor that should affect price. So I just, I appreciate you sharing these tips as far as knowing what to ask when you're walking into one of these situations. So you're not going in blind. Right. And I think that just, again, just to kind of piggyback on that, it can be very important to just be aware of that situation. Because if you have things like estate planning going on, there's going to be potentially minority interest shares being transferred. There's going to be, you know, you may have it in a buy-sell situation where that's a minority shareholder. We need to make sure that that's being taken into considerations. ESOPs, things like that. There, There's very important reasons to at least be aware of that this exists <laughs> so that when you're going into these types of transactions that you're keeping that in mind. Perfect. All right. And then the last question that I wanted to throw your way is when should someone start thinking about getting a business valuation? If that's their eventual plan is to sell their business, like I'm creating my business and that's my retirement plan. When should I start thinking about that? What's the timeline? So Again, it's going to be an it depends type issue. 
I, I again, if you're just starting out, I wouldn't suggest going for the full narrative. It's always good to have a base or a benchmark of what you can measure against. So a calculation of value report is better to get sooner rather than later, just so you have an idea, because that usually is the thing that throws business owners off so much when you say it's worth this and this is why, and it's usually half of what they expect. So it's it's a good sobering practice to do. And, and the cost of that, of having that understanding is worth its weight in gold if you're planning. So that way you'll know down the road, you'll know how to improve it. So I always say, you know, you want to start, you always want to run your company as if it can be sold like today, because you never know when a strategic buyer is going to come along. You don't know when your buy-sell agreement is going to get triggered. You don't know when someone's got like a key partner or key employee is going to die. You need to have it operated always as if you, know, you need to be running it as if you're going to be selling today. That's what I always tell business owners because they ask that, you know, I get that question quite a bit and it, it really is important to run it, to plan it as if you're going to sell today. But if you are looking to sell now, these are some of kind of my tidbits of advice here. And this, you know, different markets, it'll, it'll differ by market, but most firms that are, uh, I think most firms in general are under a million bucks. So most small firms are, are under a million dollars. Investment making firms aren't going to be the ones to approach because they want typically 15, 20 million dollar minimum size firms uh, on the investment making side. The small ones, intermediaries, are going to be business brokers. And these are just some tidbits because I see it a lot and it becomes problematic. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying to offend business brokers here. I'm just saying what I see with my clients. A lot of them, first of all, there's no license required to be a business broker. I mean, we're not business brokers here, but there, there is no license required. Anyone can be one and anyone, a lot of people from random backgrounds are business brokers. They will usually use a free valuation. It, it's, it's like a carrot, you know, to, hey, come on in here, um, you know, come in here and we'll give you this free valuation. And it's almost always going to be not, not very good. It's going to use like a cap of earning site method, you know, five times EBITDA or something like, or a, a static multiple. Almost all of them are like that. And, and they don't take into consideration the company's attributes at all because it's free. I mean, you kind of get what you pay for. The problem, you know, so, so you have that uh, 86% of companies, I think it was the Exit Planning Institute said uh, recently, 86% of companies that, that list never sell. And I, I can tell you from what I've seen that that's probably dead on. A lot of it has to do with the valuation. They're overpriced. Just their expectations are too high. But a problem is when you sign a business broker contract, there's a thing called a tail provision in almost all of these where if you fire your business broker and you sell the company within, you know, we'll say a year or two, whatever's in the contract, you still owe them that full fee. So you have to be very, very careful with that because you, a lot of people think, oh, I can just, you know, fire them and then go find someone else. You can't. No one's going to touch you for, I hate to, you know, essentially, you know, talk to you for one to two years, whatever specified. And if you're looking to exit in a year, that's a big problem. So that that's something I, I have run into more and more lately. COVID, especially with this post-COVID world where a lot of business owners, I think, sat and thought about, should I keep doing this? What's really important in life? Some of them, it's like, I'm going to have to restart my company from scratch because I took such a hit. And they don't, they just can't, they can't, fathom having to go through the pain and the troubles of doing that again, and they would rather just sell it. So we have a kind of a mix of buyers and we have some that are uh, booming, especially the online companies. Uh, they're, they're raking it in right now. 
So it, it's a mix, but most of them are on the, the not so great side. Yeah. And I think I would like to add to that too. So I think like you're saying, it's a good planning tool and all these things we talked about with how do you improve the value of your business? I think a lot of that also can come to light going through, you know, the process of this uh, calculation of value because, you know, it's discussions that, that you're going to likely have with the business evaluator, whether it's you or someone else, like, you know, like you're saying, talking about the management, talking about systems, talking about some of those things. I think it can be a good tool to look at where improvements could happen in the business too, so that you can, you know, continue to push things in the right direction for increasing the value of your business, especially if you're approaching, you know, wanting to sell it. But I think just in general as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Zach and Katina, for your insights today. It was very helpful. I always learn a lot from these. So I am sure our listeners are very appreciative as well. And Zach, I want to give a little bit of information about where to find you too. If someone's interested in getting a valuation or more information, wants to talk to you, where can they go to find you? They can go to gatewayvalue.com and all of our contact information is there. Perfect. And we will link to that in our show notes for this episode as well. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Keep that momentum going and we will see you next time. This has been another episode of the Cultivating Business Growth Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe, rate, and review. Gain access to additional free resources and learning opportunities by visiting pjscpas.com forward slash podcast.